is the, the WTF Bach podcast. Right, that fjord goes fingers. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. Hi, I'm Evan Shinners. You may call me WTF Bach. You may call me Evan. I masquerade as both. This podcast, the goal of this podcast is to get you to hear Bach the way I hear Bach. You could say Bach, you could say Bach. Anyways, the whole impetus for creating such a program is to guide your ears, to set your mind on certain aspects of an otherwise very complicated music. I'm going to help you appreciate this ornate, elaborate music by breaking it down, dissecting it, and then putting it back together. You will listen to Bach's music once, with no prior knowledge, and then again, knowing exactly what to listen for, being in the proper headspace. I believe in doing this because Bach's music, like many forms of great art, while capable of being appreciated on the surface, only becomes more profound with study. Bach's music is like the universe, beautiful from any perspective, but with telescopes and other tools, more mind-blowing, more truly awesome, and simply more to have an appreciation for. So if you want to calm yourself, put on Bach. If you want to get in a relaxed state of mind, put on Bach. If you're in heavy traffic, I recommend Bach. But if you want lasting happiness, study Bach. If you want to marvel at the accomplishments of humanity, if you want to see the potential of mankind, study Bach. We'll have plenty of time to talk about the history of Bach, um, the person he was, when he was, where he was. I just want to tell you something about sort of the infinitude that I feel belongs to, to Bach. I can't even tell you how many pieces, pieces that I've discovered that in the midst of, say, intense study, I become aware of a piece's existence and I think, wow, I can't believe I didn't even know that this work existed. Or the great musicians, the great teachers who have revealed to me something about playing this music where I then think, oh, God, well, now I have to go redo my entire life with this new knowledge. And as soon as I feel like I have a grasp on one of his styles or his personality, a piece comes up that showcases yet another different side of the musician. Truly, the study of this man is, is endless. Right away, I have to tell you that the reason for creating this podcast is to get inside of a work called The Art of Fugue, or The Art of the Fugue, Die Kunst der Fuge. And I want you to think of this podcast as an introductory podcast where I'll define a few technical terms, real words that musicians use when discussing counterpoint and analyzing counterpoint. Because it's almost impossible to talk about Bach without talking about counterpoint. Well, it's almost impossible, but it certainly is impossible to have any meaningful discussion about Bach without talking about counterpoint. And when we talk about counterpoint, we talk about the fugue. Let's pretend everyone listening is five years old, and you ask me what a fugue is. Well, if I told you it's an imitative contrapuntal technique, it means nothing to you. But I say, well, it's counterpoint. You might say, well, what is counterpoint? And then I say, contrapunctus comes from the two Latin words, contrapunctus, you know, point against point. I say, well, you start with a point. You start with a dot. Punctus. You start with a dot on the page, and you see all this sheet music here, you see all this music here, it's a bunch of dots. Well, if you string a bunch of them together, just like in geometry, if you string a bunch of these dots together, you get a line. And you'll often hear this word used interchangeably with the word melody, line. Lines and melodies, they mean the same thing. Uh, and this 
is what makes up counterpoint. It's really the creation of one line, one melody, against a bunch of other dots that are used to create another melody. So this is really music that uses the combination of lines. I don't know, some days I just want to hear what WTF Bach has to say about actual Bach. Like totally listening to this podcast. It was made by this person, WTF Bach. I think his name is Evan Shinners, but I just like can't really tell. Now the combination of lines is something like, well, I take one line, one melody. Well, that's a scale, but that there's no reason why a scale can't be a melody. And you take another idea, another melody, and you want to combine them. You want to combine the lines to make counterpoint, and it sounds like this. And you go, oh, okay, something is not working because though they are two independent ideas, the point now from one line is now against the other point from the other line, and it's creating this vertical implication which doesn't sound so good. And that's the counterpoint. That's what we're interested in. We're interested in these vertical structures which have now arisen out of parts which were conceived horizontally. You have to do something that sounds maybe like this. And not quite something like this. See, in my second example there, I have two ideas which sound fine, and even the combination of them, fine together, there's no egregious dissonance. This, maybe these are two different characters, really. They're not in the same... It's as if one person just said, what movie you want to see tonight? And the guy responds saying, nope, don't eat shellfish. That's no conversation there. So what we need to do is we sort of need to imitate one another. Uh, we need to have the same conversation. That brings us back to the, that term that I threw out earlier. I said it's imitative counterpoint. It's for this reason that counterpoint is imitative, because we need to all be having the same conversation if we're going to be talking with one another, right? <laughs> um, this brings me to the, the term voice. Because when we say, when we speak about counterpoint, we say, this fugue has four voices. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that four people are singing it. It is interesting to look at the fact that this technique did come from the Renaissance. And most of the high art came from church. You're sitting there in church and it's winter and it's cold and you don't really want to go out. So instead of just chanting all the words, you know, Domine clamaviate de profundis domine, which is, by the way, how you get through all the words quickly is you use chant. You want to make something that's a little more beautiful, something that's more fun, why not? And something that can maybe keep everyone together, it takes more time, it takes more art. And so when we speak about these lines in counterpoint, these independent ideas, we call them voices. And that's what a four-voice fugue means. It means it's a fugue with four independent parts, with four independent lines. And just in the same way that the human voice may not sing more than one note at a time, notes in a line of counterpoint may also not play or sing more than one note at a time. It may help us just a little bit more to understand what counterpoint is by looking at what counterpoint is not. So we turn to this piece of classical music, for example. So the right hand here, that's a melody, that's a line. But the left hand, well, that's an accompaniment. It's not an independent idea. Its sole purpose is to support the independent melody on top. If I were to play this same piece using counterpoint, we might do something like this. 
And now that is counterpoint. Why? Because, well, this has the horizontal implication of a line, whereas this is, is really a vertical texture. It's as if I could simplify and play Something like that, yeah. Mozart was a great contrapuntalist. Mozart, that piece, that example I showed you is by Mozart. And Mozart was obsessed with Bach. I believe it was in Leipzig, Mozart went into the Thomas Kirche where Bach worked. He heard the choir doing a motet, a piece for two choirs sort of pitted against each other. Many people wrote about this this event. He, he goes into the church, he's sort of looking um, tired, whatever. I mean, he was Mozart. He was like the Michael Jackson of, of 18th century Vienna, right? So he, he, you know, he's, I don't know, maybe he had too many drugs the previous night. So he goes into church and, um, and all of a sudden they, they start singing, you know, with these two choirs. And Mozart perks up immediately. The, one of the written reports says that now he's listening as if his whole soul is in his ears. And he just listens intently to this, to this motet. And it finishes and he exclaims, finally, something we can learn from. You know, he found something that even he did not know how to do. And then, you know, after the, after the church, uh, I guess someone from the church met Mozart and he asked about the, the Bach piece. And he said, well, we have several parts actually, of, of the Bach piece. And he said, very good, let's go see him. So they took him upstairs. They showed him these parts, which are, which are parts, by the way, not the full score. So you have the soprano part on one piece of paper, the alto part on another piece of paper, et cetera, et cetera. So he places them all over the room so that he can look at them. And Mozart has to try and put them together in his head by looking at one and figuring out how it's going to fit with the other one. So he, you know, puts puts a score on the chair and then the soprano part on the table and then puts, you know, I don't know, the tenor part on the, on the floor. And he's, he's going back and forth between all these parts on his knees. And everyone is, is watching him because he just looks like finally he's, he's found this thing. You know, I mean, he, it was Bach. And after that, I, I think maybe Mozart was like 25 when this happened. So he, he died at 35. This is the last 10 years of his life. Mozart's music became immensely more contrapuntal after that moment. And he started writing fugues to himself. He wrote out some fugues, mailed them to his sister, and he said, you should memorize these because these are hard, if not impossible, to play out of your head. Again, with the, with the great skill, with the great foresight. It means, you know, Mozart, who was the greatest improviser of his day, had difficulty improvising these great fugues. Let's get back to the creation of a contrapuntal piece. All of us have, at some point in our lives, participated in imitative counterpoint, probably at the tender age of five. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Okay, I'll spare you the rest of that beauty, but that is counterpoint, actually, believe it or not. And what's more, that is imitative counterpoint. In contrapuntal terms, we call that sort of imitation that is using the exact same pitches the exact same shape, the exact same line. At a different time, we call that a canon. You may know it as a round. And please send me the rounds you know, because I love singing rounds, and I only know a few of them. But 
send me your answer. Okay, you'll notice that because this technique is merely repeating the same line at a different time. In fact, the little clip I played of myself singing is honestly the same recording just copied and pasted you're a little bit limited in the emotional states you can explore. And, and the length, of course, for these rounds are, are only a few seconds because you can only go so far. You need to be exceedingly clever to write one of these rounds that could go into diverse musical territory. It sort of, it reminds me of a palindrome, you know, the, the phrase using the same letters forward and backwards, um, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama, able, I was, air I saw, Elba, also send me your palindromes. Yes, please. Um, you know, but the longer you go, the sort of looser you're going to have to get with the thing. I think if you look up the world's longest palindrome, it doesn't really make much sense. So similar to a round, because it has such a strict rule, it has to be exactly the same. Uh, therefore, I think the longer and more expressive you try and make it, maybe the more absurd the thing has to become. So the obvious solution for this imitative counterpoint is to be a little lenient with the imitation. We want to hit on a style now that's imitative, but it doesn't directly copy the first melody before. So it merely imitates them. And that is what a fugue is. And that's the imitative counterpoint of a fugue. Now that's what a fugue is. You have your lines, your independently moving voices going against other lines, creating counterpoint and one voice leads the other and the others imitate that voice. The others take up the topic of conversation. It's as if one person says, row, row, row your boat. And the other person says, indeed, go on and row that boat. And from there, an interesting conversation may begin. Well, in this case, a conversation as interesting as rowing boats. Okay, so now I'm going to throw out a few fugal terms. I'm going to be frugal with my fugal terms. Uh, I'm going to really help you try and hear the construction of these fugues, and therefore I'll be using certain words over and over again. And, you know, it'd be good to know what I'm talking about when I throw out these terms. So there are many terms that pertain to fugues, but right now I'm going to throw five at you. The first one to know is subject. Subject. That's what you hear at the beginning of every fugue. If you go to a music concert and something says fugue on it, that's the first melody you hear of the fugue. The first entrance of the first voice enters with the subject. That's the tune. You might say that's the subject of conversation. And now I'm going to introduce to you the beloved subject of the art of fugue. It goes like this. That's the subject of the art of fugue. Now, the whole exercise of the art of fugue is to generate not one, but 14 fugues and four additional cannons, by the way, those are rounds, four additional rounds out of this one cell of music. So let's hear that again. Bach takes that melody and he sees the universe within it. He sees the potential of how this, this melody could be stretched. He, he kept turning shapes over and over in his mind, manipulating them, reversing them, inverting them, stretching these musical shapes into different emotional capacities. He was just seeing potential within the limits of this one cell. And the chances are that as his mind worked this way, he probably spent a good chunk of his mature life thinking about the many different ways that one, sub, one fugue subject could be treated. 
This was my, by the way, my ringtone when I was 18 years old. And this was his solution. That is the answer to the most permutable fugue subject of all time. So the question you could ask is, well, can it be done with other shapes? What about with other subjects? Well, yes, you'll see that Bach also completed a composition around the same time as the Art of Fugue, where he does a similar treatment on another fugue subject, which was played to him by King Frederick the Great. And this work is called The Musical Offering. This is the fugue subject. Which, just like in the Art of Fugue, he takes one subject and generates a whole book of music based on it. Yeah, but the musical offering will have to be the subject of another podcast. Um, in any case, this seemed like this was somewhat of a fascination with the elderly Bach. Or not so elderly. I mean, he died at 65. And this fascination with, you know, taking a subject and stretching it, flipping it, twisting it, squeezing it, and so on, and getting a gem of music to generate a universe. Well, he's generated one of the truly greatest achievements in Western music, the art of fugue. He was probably thinking about this for a good portion of his life. And it's a mysterious world, this world of the art of fugue. It's all in D minor, every fugue. And many myths surrounding this piece, which will be the subject of podcasts to come. But for now, we have to finish the fugal terms. Okay. So we've already covered the term voice. That means how many independently functioning lines there are in the counterpoint, voice, how many moving parts. So then we're on to answer. Answer is simply the second voice that comes in. So every fugue will have an answer just as every fugue will have a subject. And this is the second person essentially picking up the topic of conversation as put forward by the first person. So in the art of fugue, the first fugue, Answer sounds like this. I should just isolate the answer. It sounds like this. You'll notice that it is very similar to the subject, but not exactly similar. That's what makes it a fugue and not a round or a canon. Okay, now the next term is exposition. Exposition. It means exposing, the exposing, or the showing of all the voices in a fugue. Okay, so if there's four voices in a fugue, the exposition is over once the fourth voice says the subject, right? Everyone is exposed. All four voices on the table, exposed, exposition. It's as if it were a play with four characters coming in one by one. Once the fourth character delivers his first line, that's the end of the exposition. All right. The next term is the episode. The episode is sort of a stretch of time in the fugue where you can't find a subject, where there's no statement of the subject. Episodes are kind of like the glue which hold the fugue together, as the episodes tend to relieve the listener of the constant statement of the subject. And the episodes can, you know, modulate from place to place and bring in new harmonies, new ideas, uh, bring in new places where the subjects could be restated in a different key, in a different mood. Uh, you can remember the term episode by imagining a child having an episode. Oh, she's just having an episode. It means she's just going to, you know, go off in her own little world, but soon enough she'll calm down and the subject will come back. Okay, now the last term I'm going to say is the counter subject. It's the material that gets played in one voice when another voice has the subject, but that's not all. That material has to reoccur. That is to say that the material that happens in one voice during the entrance of another voice is not necessarily a counter subject unless you hear it again and again in other places in the fugue. So this distinguishes from being mere counterpoint. You see, if the counter subject 
did not come back, it would just be counterpoint. But because the material reoccurs, it is a counter subject. And I believe that's everything we need to know to get started on a deep study of the artifuge. One, two, three, four, five words. Subject, answer, exposition, episode, counter subject. And so I think I'll wrap it up there and then we'll start digging into the first counterpoint of the artifuge next. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the WTF Thought Podcast. Thank you.